As I mentioned at the beginning of our service, today is a special day. Any Sunday we get to welcome new members is always special, but then on top of that you add uh, two baptisms, Nicole and Ada, and it makes the day even more special. Because of the baptisms, it's a, it's a natural time for us to examine what the Bible teaches about baptism. Baptism is a word picture that is given to us by Christ that proclaims the gospel. It proclaims the gospel to the one being baptized, and it proclaims the gospel to those who are witnessing the baptism. It is a time to celebrate in the life of the church uh, because it shows that God is working. God is bringing people into his kingdom through the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you slow down and examine what the New Testament teaches about baptism, you realize that baptism is rich in meaning for us as Christians. Many, especially those who grew up in some flavor of Baptist, some flavor, you pick your flavor, vanilla Baptist, chocolate Baptist, so you never know. For many of us who grew up in that tradition, we may just view baptism from the standpoint of going public for Jesus. This is my public profession, my public statement of faith. And while there is some truth behind that, it just doesn't say enough. Baptism is not a statement about what we have done, but rather it's a statement about what God has done in the life of the one being baptized. And this morning, if we allow it, Witnessing these baptisms should remind us of many precious truths about who we are in Christ through faith. So this morning it's a time to remember as well as a time to rejoice. And as we look at baptism this morning, our church's confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't know why they had to write such long titles back in 1689. Our confession will serve as a guide to understand the Bible's teaching about baptism. A confession of faith summarizes what the Bible teaches about various doctrines. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The church confession contains four paragraphs that lay out the biblical teaching about baptism. Now, when you hear four paragraphs, do not freak out. Sometimes a paragraph is a sentence in confessions of faith. It's not five to seven sentences as I have to teach my students at school. It's just a sentence. We're going to examine each of the paragraphs in turn, but we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. And we'll examine each paragraph through a question. So question one, what does baptism mean? Question two, who is baptism for? Question three, what is the element of baptism? And number four, what is the mode of baptism? What does baptism mean? Well, if the summary statement given in paragraph one can be understood, the last three paragraphs of the confession really fall into place. So the first paragraph of our church confession reads, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So we 
see first that baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament. Now, we have to admit, we don't use the word ordinance very often, but an ordinance is an authoritative decree or order. In fact, other than speaking theologically, the only other time I know I use ordinance is around July 4th, when all my wonderful neighbors decide to start shooting fireworks on June 15th. always asking for Corey, what is the Berea City Ordinance on fireworks? I need these things to go away. They're too loud. I hope the children sleep because I want to sleep. It's just not a word we use very often. But baptism, as an ordinance, means we cannot treat it as something that's optional. It is a decree from Christ that his church must follow. And Matthew 28 contains what we call Christ's great commission to his disciples. And before giving them the commission, Jesus reminded them in Matthew 28, verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. So as Jesus gives the commission, he gives it as the one who possesses all authority. I don't know about you, but when I hear someone possesses all authority, I know, one, I ought to listen, and two, I probably need to do what follows. This is what Jesus said, Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The verb in this passage is make disciples of all nations. But the command cannot be obeyed without baptizing and teaching. It all goes together. So if you say you're making disciples, but there's no teaching and there's no baptizing, you're not making disciples, according to Jesus. One author wrote, the act of baptism is to be done in obedience to a command given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples. So it is an ordinance. It's, it's an order, if you will, from Christ that we are to obey. But it's not just an ordinance, it's also a sign. For the person being baptized, baptism is a sign of their fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. It is a sign of their being united to Christ. It is a sign of their forgiveness of sins. And it is a sign of the obligation that is now on them to walk in newness of life. Baptism, in some ways, is a very personal experience because it is saying something not only to those of us who are watching, but it is also saying something to the one who is being baptized. And by God's design, the act of baptism is communicating the great realities of our union with Christ to the believer. And if you were to go read the confession this afternoon, which I would encourage you to do, it gives many passages that show us this, but the clearest comes from Romans 6. That's why we read that this morning, Romans 6, 1 through 11. So as we turn our attention to that passage, we see that in verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What Paul is doing here, as a good thinker and a master of rhetoric, he's anticipating a potential objection to what he said at the end of chapter 5. Namely, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the the objection that he anticipates is this. Well, if increased sinning 
leads to God's grace abounding even more, that would mean God is glorified because he's giving more grace. So shouldn't we sin even more and then repent so that God gives more grace and is glorified? When you think about it, the objection really isn't all that hypothetical. Perhaps you've had the thought yourself before. Many throughout history have had the thought. If you're into just history in general, there's a interesting gentleman named Rasputin in Russia who advised the Romanov family the last of the czars, and he believed this. Well, let's just sin and sin and sin, then we'll go repent, we'll get more grace, and then sin and sin and sin, repent and get more grace. Just what Paul's talking about. But Paul's response is found in verse 2. By no means, old King James said, God forbid, how can we who died to sin still live in it? I found J.D. Phillips' paraphrase helpful when he paraphrased this verse this way. What a ghastly thought. We who have died to sin, how could we live in it a moment longer? Ghastly thought. He must have been thrilled. So Christians will not have the thought that we should sin even more so that grace will abound and increase because we have died to sin. That's Paul's logic. Well, how has the Christian died to sin? As we come to verse 3, it's interesting that Paul uses baptism as a reminder of how the Christian has died to sin. He writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's in verse 3 where Paul begins to remind the Romans of the great realities they possess through faith in Christ. And he's going to do it by looking at baptism. And as one commentator put it, baptism is a shadow of what happened to us when we met Christ. In other words, baptism is a risen picture of an inward reality that God works in us. So Paul is saying everyone who has been baptized into Christ Jesus, has been baptized into his death. We've been baptized into Christ, therefore we have died to sin. Christians have been baptized into the death of Jesus. That's rather unusual language for us because it conveys the idea that somehow you as a Christian were present when Jesus died. And the reality is you were physically present over 2,000 years ago, but in God's eyes and in his way of seeing things, you were in Christ at that moment. And at that moment, as Jesus died, your old self died with him. This is not the only time Paul mentions this truth. He he mentions it again and again throughout his epistles. That Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Later in Galatians, Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, the cross, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Colossians, he writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Not hypothetical language for Paul. It's very personal. He writes, I have been crucified. The world has been crucified to me. 
I have been crucified to the world through the crucifixion of Jesus. And he makes the language personal when writing to the Colossians. He tells them, you have died. In what sense did the Christian die with Christ? Well, throughout these 11 verses and those verses I just read, there's a lot of what we might call identity language. The doc, this is what the theologians call union with Christ. It is the reality that we have been united with Christ. So Paul in verse 5 of this passage says, For you have been united in him in a death like his. So there is a vital, intimate, spiritual, and living union between Jesus and all those who come to him in faith. It is so close. This union is so close that the New Testament says that the believer that believers they have died with Christ. They were buried with Christ. They were raised with Christ, both in regeneration and believers will be raised with Christ when he comes again. And when it says we died, Paul is talking about the old self, the old man. So the old Ben is dead and gone. No breath left in the old Ben. He's, he's a goner. And the reality is, I didn't do anything to make that happen. Jesus did it, and that's why I am who I am today. And baptism is a sign to the one being baptized that through their union with Christ, who they used to be is dead and gone, never to be seen again or run to again. But Paul doesn't stop there. And he also says in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. The old man didn't only die. He was buried. He was put into the ground, never to be exhumed And there's a purpose in that. Paul writes, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so in order that, that's the purpose. That's the purpose of all this. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The old man was buried with Christ so that the new man might be raised up. And that new man, that new person, the new you, walks in newness of life because Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So baptism, it, it pictures for us the death that the old man died with Christ, the reality that the old man has been buried with Christ, and the reality that because Jesus rose from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life because we are now a new creation. So baptism also is a sign to us of the certainty of our union with Christ. Union with Christ should give the believer assurance. Throughout this passage, we see Paul using words such as certainly, we know, once for all. Since we have been united with Christ in his death, we will most assuredly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self was crucified with him, we see, so that the body of sin would be neutralized. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
because we have died with Christ and have been set free from it. And earlier in Romans, Paul declared that we have been forgiven. We have been justified because of Christ. Paul's thought continues. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore he will never die again. Jesus died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he now lives to God. But in verse 11, you see three words, so you also. So because this happened to Jesus, because Jesus died to sin, and he now lives to God, so now you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Old man, dead. New person, alive to God in Christ Jesus. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, was very helpful, I think, when he wrote, This is no game of let's pretend. Believers should consider themselves to be what God has, in fact, made them. In other words, this is Paul saying, This is who you are. This is what baptism is saying to you. This is who you are in Christ. I made a preacher's mistake this morning. I started reading another book after my sermon was done. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, has a whole chapter on Romans 6. If you'll bear with me for just a moment, I wanted to read just to summarize all of this. I thought he so helpfully summarizes what Paul talks about here in Romans 6. To understand rightly how baptism functions in our Christian lives, we must first recognize that it points to Jesus Christ and to union with him by faith. It does not point at faith as much as it summons us to faith. Christ himself, and yes, all that faith finds in him is the point. Not primarily what we ourselves have done in coming to faith. Baptism says, look at what is yours in Christ, not look at the faith that brought you to Christ. This, the dynamic and direction of baptism symbolism, is of fundamental importance if it is to nourish us in the lifelong way Paul believes it should. There is a further aspect of baptism we need to grasp. Christ has given it to us as a naming ceremony. He quotes the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is an important paradox to grasp here. Naming ceremonies do not transform us inwardly, yet they make a lifelong difference to us. Our parents went through a kind of naming ceremony when they registered our birth. They were asked, what is the name of your child? The naming ceremony did not change us inwardly. Even if it had taken place when we were adults, that would still be true. Yet this naming ceremony had a lifelong impact on us. We hear one or two words and we respond, instinctively respond. That's me, as I hear it. That name identifies me and tells me who I am. My full name reminds me where I have come from, what privileges I have had. It reminds me of the lifestyle I am expected to live as a member of my family. If all this is true of a secular naming ceremony, how much more significant is the naming ceremony of baptism? For here we are named for the Trinity. Baptism, therefore, does not speak about faith, but to faith, and says, You are being named for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has sent His Spirit to unite us to Jesus Christ. In Him, 
We are given the rich inheritance of all the gracious resources we will ever need. We're brought from sin to salvation, from death to life, and from earth to heaven. In essence, then, Paul is saying, look at what your baptism pictures. Listen to what your baptism says. And as faith takes hold of its message, remember what it tells you about who you are in Christ. So Nicole, Ada, everyone watching today, listen. What is baptism saying to you? It's saying to you, as one who has possessed faith in Christ, this is who you are. This is what Christ has done for you. And now, as one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and one who can be filled with the Spirit, you can now walk in newness of life. So the meaning of baptism is foundational for understanding the remaining three paragraphs. And honestly, I know we're a little biased because we are Baptists, but if you understand what we just went through, everything else should naturally fall into place. We just looked at what is baptism. Our second question is, who is baptism for? Who is baptism for? Well, paragraph two says, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. This ordinance being baptism. There are three important phrases in the confession about who baptism is for. It is first for those who have repented towards God. It is second for those who have faith in Jesus. And it is third for those who obey Jesus. Repentance, faith, and obedience can only be exercised by someone who has been united to Christ. We only see people who have been united to Jesus during all of those in the scriptures. And since baptism is a sign of our union with Christ, our forgiveness in Christ, and the new life that a Christian lives in Christ, baptism is only for those who have been united to Christ through faith. So the confession says that those who profess repentance, faith, and obedience are the ones who should be baptized. So if there is no profession, there should be no baptism. So that means that only disciples of Jesus should be baptized. Only those who are believers. So when we go again to Jesus' great commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Well, who does the pronoun them refer to? Disciples. That original group that heard Jesus' commission were to go and to make disciples of all nations, and those people who became disciples were to be baptized. And the early history of the church in Acts shows that those early disciples listened to Jesus. Acts 2, verse 38, And Peter said to them, those who heard on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, So those who received the word were baptized. Well, received the word is just another word for believe, another word for faith. Acts 8, 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Well, who, who is the they that were being baptized? That's not just grammar, but that's how we pronounce the question. 
who is the they? Well, it's, it's those who believe, as Philip preached about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. One more from Acts, Acts 18.8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So who is baptism for? It is for disciples of Jesus. What is baptism? Who is baptism for? And number three, what is the element of baptism? Another confession says this, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water. Wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There are two key truths to make sure we understand. First is that water is the outward element to be used in baptism. When we say the word, when I say, you're not saying it, when I say the word element, it means it is the tangible substance that is used to communicate the truth of baptism to us. So, first Sunday of every month we take the Lord's Supper. There are two elements in the Lord's Supper, the wafer and the juice, and both of them are communicating to us something about who Jesus is and what Jesus did on our behalf. Likewise, water. We see Matthew 3.16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Acts 8.38, that Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he, that's the eunuch, commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them, and when they came up out of the water. So water is the element of baptism. But there's one other important truth in here, and it's what Ferguson referenced earlier. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is in many ways a naming ceremony, but it also tells us that baptism is Trinitarian in that we are not only baptized in Jesus' name, but in the name of all three members of the Trinity. And this comes straight from Jesus. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is Trinitarian in nature. It reminds us, it tells us that all three members of the Trinity are at work. They were at work in what baptism signifies to us. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes so that we would see the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit regenerated us so that those who are spiritually dead might come to spiritual life. Jesus came and obeyed where we had disobeyed. Jesus came and died the death that we deserved. The Father raised Jesus from the dead by his glory. The Father sent Christ to redeem us. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. These great realities that baptism reminds us of also remind us that it is the work of God God in three persons, blessed Trinity, that did all of this. God did it. Our last question, what is the mode of baptism? What is the mode of baptism? Well, the confession says immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So the biblical mode of baptism is immersion. original, the word in the original primarily means to dip or submerge. 
So dipping the person in the water is necessary, the confession says, for the due administration of the baptism. The verses I just mentioned from Matthew 3 with Jesus' baptism in Acts 8 bear this out as well. We see Jesus coming up out of the water. We see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch coming up out of the water as well. But when you think about the great realities that baptism communicates to us, immersion is a beautiful picture of those realities. For example, as the person being baptized is taken under the water, that is a visible reminder that who they were has been buried with Christ. Then when that same person is taking up out of the water, it is a visible reminder that we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So immersion is the proper mode of baptism. So baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of fellowship with him in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him. That's old school language for union of remission of sins and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Baptism is for those who have placed all their hope and faith on the person and work of Christ. So how do you apply a sermon like this? After all, if you've been baptized as a believer, you may do that again. It's a one-time event. But first, for those who are being baptized, here in a few moments as you are baptized, remember that this is about God's work in Christ. By God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, you have been placed in fellowship with Christ because God worked. You are united to Christ in his death and resurrection because God worked. You have been forgiven of your sin against God because he forgave it. You walk in newness of life in union with Christ and by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Your baptism today says all of that to you. It also says rejoice. Rejoice in God's work in your life and thank him that for all that he has done. But what about those of us in the water? How can we apply something like this? Two words, rejoice and remember. Rejoice in God's work in the lives of those being baptized and in the life of our church. And remember, this is a cause for rejoicing. Nobody would even want to pursue baptism without God working in but also remember, remember who you are in Christ. Remember that what baptism says to those being baptized today was also said to you when you were baptized. And I think that's one of the glorious things about what the Bible teaches about baptism is that I can look back at it and say, this is what it means. As opposed to, I went public. That doesn't have the same meaning. But we can look back and we can think today about who we are because of what God has done for us 